Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is John Goldingay. He's the David Allen Hubbard Professor of Old Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary and priest in charge at St. Barnabas Episcopal Church in Pasadena, California. He's written a number of books, most recently, Reading Jesus' Bible, How the New Testament Helps Us Understand the Old Testament. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you John Goldinger. John, welcome to the podcast. Okay. So thanks so much for being willing to talk with me. I, sure. I, I must admit, in full disclosure, I've been a fan of your work for a while, and you've your book, uh, "Reading Jesus' Bible: How the New Testament Helps Us Understand the Old Testament," is a great book. And I wanted to ask you, as I was reading it, uh, you're towards, you know, you're, you're at the height of your career, you know, as a biblical scholar. You'll you've had a distinguished career at Fuller. You'll you'll be returning to England, I think, next year. Could you tell me about some of your earliest memories of the Bible? Like when you read it, was it in your home? Was it in Sunday school? I mean, what was your earliest experience actually handling and reading the Bible like? Uh, it was in Sunday school. Uh, my parents uh, didn't go to church, but they sent my son, my sister and me off to Sunday school on Sunday afternoons, maybe partly so they could get a quiet hour. Uh, and, <laughs> Free um, childcare. <laughs> I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, one of my vivid memories is some kind of um, – reading competition or something like that where i had to um read out the story of david and goliath uh, i guess i must have been about uh, maybe nine or ten or eleven or something like that um and i remember standing there in this kind of competition thing reading the story and was the competition to memorize it or to read it dramatically i mean what was Just the... to read it dramatically i think so i mean did you win uh i don't remember that's impressive isn't it <laughs> <laughs> And, and at what point, where did that germination of that seed? Well, well, I then, um, when I went to high school, um, I, I went to a high school where in those days, in those days, if you were going to get into Oxford or Cambridge, you have to, you had to have, um, uh, studied Latin. Uh, and in the high school where I, where I was sent, um, uh, they were very keen on getting people into Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, and so we had to do Latin and I wasn't very good at Latin. Uh, and so I decided when I had to choose another language to do Greek, ancient Greek, because I thought that might help my Latin. Um, and that led me into being able to 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 read the New Testament um, in in Greek, which my I'm, I'm, I'm still only about 13 or 14, um, which my and my pastor uh, loved the fact was himself lo- loved um, study. And loved the fact that he could refer to things in the Greek New Testament, share them with me. So I kind of started getting enthusiastic about that kind of thing from my mid-teens, really. So you were the opposite of Saint Augustine. You, like, he had good Latin, weak Greek. <laughs> you had weak Latin that <laughs> drove you to the Greek. <laughs> and, and and through that relationship with your pastor, and this is in the Church of England. No, it was actually an independent evangelical church. Um, but but roughly at the same time, the same high school uh, in Birmingham in England used to provide um, most of the uh, choir boys for the cathedral choir in Birmingham. And because of that, I got into that. So I got into being in an independent evangelical church part of the time and in the Anglican cathedral part of the time. Uh, And when I felt the Lord was calling me into the ministry, I was clear that it was the Anglican ministry he was calling me to. How how did that become clear to you? 
I don't know. It was just something that um, I knew the Lord was saying to me. I can't, um, you know, it's just sometimes, you know, the Lord is saying things and that was just something I knew the Lord was saying. Hmm. And how, how do you go from there to biblical studies? I mean, at what point were you like, hey, well, this, that is, was, this that is the was way I'm going to do it. This is the yeah, route I'm going to go. That's when I was uh, 18, nearly uh, about yeah, 18, when I was thinking about um, what I was going to study at university. And as you'll gather, I was already uh, enthusiastic about studying um, the scriptures. Uh, and uh, But I didn't think you could study theology at university unless you um, believed the Lord was calling me calling you to the ministry. Uh, and when I was 18, again, in a way that I can't explain except that a, convic- a conviction came to me that the Lord was calling me to the ministry, and that gave me the excuse to study theology. Uh, so, but then, uh, then the fact that I'd already studied Greek meant that I didn't need to do Greek in the theology course, and that gave me the scope in the program to do Hebrew, and that was actually a crucial um, uh, way, uh, means whereby, thing that led me into especially becoming involved with the Old Testament. And so, yeah, oh, go ahead. Sorry. A decision I made when I was gone. No, go ahead. Yeah. A decision I made when I was age 12 to study Greek in order to improve my Latin is why we're having this conversation now. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a good or a bad pitch for Providence, but we'll leave it as it is. <laughs> I think it's a great pitch for Providence. <laughs> it is, certainly. And you've written a number of books, including um, a book that's really helped me, your Old Testament theology, um, Israel's Gospel. And you've written this book about reading the Testaments. I mean, kind of using, you know, how the New Testament helps us understand the Old, or as you call it in the book, the First Testament. Now, there are no shortage of books on this topic, and you're a pretty distinguished scholar. Why this book at this time? Uh, well, one cheeky answer is Erdman's asked me to write it. Okay, there you go. Uh, uh, I mean, they they were they they wanted me to write something for them, and and we talked. I talked with the editor guy there about the possibility of writing uh, a kind of pillarish introduction to the Old Testament for Christians. Uh, and the editor guy suggested that if I could start from the New Testament, that that would help people because that was what people were familiar with. And that gave me the idea of doing the book in the way that I did by starting from well something I've been I'd I'd been well aware of. Uh, that it struck me a lot, the way in which particularly the beginning of Matthew's gospel has so many um, ways of using the Old Testament and that that would provide a way into talking about the different ways in which the Old Testament itself works. Yeah, well, okay, so then if Erdman's comes up with a big enough signing bonus, you could write a lot of interesting things. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't get very big signing bonuses for writing theological books. When I was, um, somebody asked me once how how long it took me to write that uh, Old Testament theology, Israel's gospel book that you just referred to. And I tried to work it out, and I reckon that it, that it, that um, from the royalties and so on, I probably gained about a dollar an hour for writing that book. So, if you were just willing to like sew soccer balls with your so like the stitching in soccer balls with your teeth in a third world country, you could probably make the same amount of money. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember something you say in that book. Actually, I was actually I think studying at Princeton doing doctoral work in the theology department at the time. And you say, like, I don't know what Karl Barth and with respect to Barth, and I think you referenced Pannenberg, too, what they mean about God's hiddenness. Because when I read the First Testament, it seems like God's trying to disclose himself all over the place. Uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I don't remember saying that, but I believe you if I did. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I was quite struck by it. So you have like you have several um, lenses in which you look. You talk about the way uh, the first, the second testament looks at the first one: story, promises, ideas, relationship, and life. Now, it strikes me that it strikes me from reading the book and from hearing a little bit about your story that you're a man of deep piety, and and that piety kind of shaped your own story and and the path you took into academic work and yet you you understand higher criticism pretty well i mean you you, you don't you're not dismissive of that and yet you seem to keep an elegant hold an elegant balance between the two or, or, or you seem to put them in relationship in a way that's really fruitful i mean how has that been how well, have you, I hope that's you, true yeah how have you come to that place because I, I think that's not an easy place to come to particularly in biblical studies today I, I think it's it's more of a problem in the united states than it is in britain uh and that's partly why i'm here um because uh it's the it's the holding those two together is very important to what fuller theological seminary where i teach uh to what it is whereas in much of the united states um, more so than is the case in britain you have to choose between either you're going to be a, a properly critical person or you're going to be a kind of fundamentalist kind of person and being able to hold the two together is harder here, which is, as I say, I think is one of the reasons why Fuller has several times hired people from Britain, because we, we, the, the tension, one way to put it is to say, this is a slight exaggeration, we don't have fundamentalism in Britain. Uh, and, and so the, there isn't so much tension there over these kind of issues. It's e somehow it's easier for us to hold them together. But I think then of key importance to me was when I when I did when I went to Oxford uh, as a, as a not as a nineteen year old or whatever it was uh, the the Old Testament uh, professor whose classes I uh, especially enjoyed a guy called John Baker was somebody who in his own being held those two together he was more kind of liberal high church than I was uh, but he was somebody who was who was himself a priest but who was also a professor of Old Testament. And you can you could t tell that he held the two together. And that kind of meant that I wasn't having to choose between the two in the work that I did as an undergraduate. Do you think part of the reason that in, that in England these issues aren't as pronounced is because there was no fundamentalist modernist controversy in the early yeah, 20th that's, century? Yeah, yeah. Mm, so yeah. The, these things, do you think some of that also has to do with, with this weird period in the Church of England? I feel like most of the time when evangelicals or renewal people coming to the church, they're kind of looked at, you know, askance or with suspicion. But it seems like the Church of England has been able to, like, welcome them in in, in, in some weird way. And so maybe you have you have actually a, a, some kind of um, warmer relationship between the evangelical spirit and the establishment church. I, I don't think that was true uh, when I started off, uh, which was this is the I mean, it was 1961 when I went to university. Uh, it was in the, the period after the war was quite a low point in the kind of fortunes of evangelicals in the Church of England. But it was the beginning of the period when through partly through the especially through the ministry of John Stott uh, and then of Jim Packer, uh, where there was a growth in evangelicals taking um, well, evangelicals taking scholarship seriously and evangelicals taking um, the Church of England seriously. F.F. F. Bruce was another. He wasn't um, uh, an Anglican, uh, but he was somebody who was a respected scholar who also was known to be an evangelical. And I happened to be um, starting my studies uh, at a point when that was beginning to grow. 
um, so that what you just described has become truer of the position of evangelicals in the Church of England uh, over the past 50 years, much more than it was um, over 50 years ago. It's interesting. Early on in the book, you talk about trying to talk about the way in which the authors of the First Testament look at Israel's story. You talk about how movies of they're based on true events, yeah. kind of the genre of historical fiction that we know that they're rendering something that happened, but they're fusing interpretation and event and significance and and dramatic impact and art form all in one. Yep. And we sort of assume that that's tells a, there's a true rendering there, you know, even if it's, right. even if it's not what you might see if you had your iPhone seven or something with an HD right. camera. It, right. It, and, and that you say that, that the authors of the first testament didn't struggle with that. They understood all these things in a way that moderns have a really right. hard time keeping together. Right. 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 And is, and that was, is that, yeah. And then you talk about why the historical critical project has really struggled. Uh, because it seems like you're almost arguing they can't get uh, what the authors of the text they're studying just understood intuitively. Right. That's right. That's right. Now, that's the one of the most uh, helpful books. Well, two things about that. One is that although I'm very comfortable with that way of describing things now, when I started as a graduate student in the mid 60s, um, that it was well, yeah, yeah, well, late 60s. Um, I found that I had to struggle to work my way through that because I think there wasn't a standard way of thinking about it. And it was much more the case that evangelicals were inclined to think that they needed to hold to very conservative, critical sorts of positions in order to be able to safeguard the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, and as you say, I belonged to, a, I think, I suppose, the, gener the next generation that was trying to see how we could hold those two, two things together. And in understanding why we had a struggle about that, I then found um, that one of the most helpful books I've ever read about Scripture was a book called The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative. Oh, yeah, yeah. By a guy called Hans Frey, F-R-E-I, which is a historical book about how um, in the 18th and 19th centuries, the conviction that you read Scripture um, as a story uh, and the conviction that you read scripture as history kind of came apart and in which with the development of critical thinking, the, the reality of the difference between the story that scripture told and the actual history that you'd have um, been able to take, make a video of if you'd been there, those two came apart and you had to choose which one you're interested in. And nobody before that had really had to do that. And so we, uh, towards the end of the 20th century, were still the victims of a split that came about um, in the 18th century that we're still trying to find our way um, through the holding of these two together again. But where I think that the genre, uh, I wouldn't call it, I'd rather call it fictionalized history than historical fiction. Uh, that is, it's, it's, it's real history it's talking about, but it's, this, it's the history told in a way that um, seeks to communicate with people and make it vivid and doesn't mind making up speeches and all those things that are true about uh, movies that are based on fact that are really about things that happened, uh, but, but, it, but in which there's quite a lot of freedom exercised by a scriptwriter, in which that, that way of thinking about the movies that we watch ought to help us a lot uh, with our understanding of the nature of scripture. It's so interesting. I know so many people who, before that book was published, told me they drove to Yale to copy Fry's dissertation. 
Oh, really? Yeah, it's, it's PhD <laughs> students. Where they, it was so important, and this is before it was. Yeah, but, oh, yeah. That people would just yeah. go and photocopy. They would drive all the way to Yale to be, yeah. and go just because it was there. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so amazing. Yeah, it's interesting because you. One of the things I was struck by. You in a section early on in the book on topology in Romans, you make this great point. You're talking about in Romans five the relationship between Jesus and Adam, and the way sin comes into the world, and the way the work of Christ, uh, the blessing and grace unfolds. And you note that Romans doesn't talk about everyone physically descending from Adam. <laughs> that right. that it was through him that everyone became sinners, but that's it. And you say the whole of humanity comes about. Uh, the, the, the new humanity comes about through Jesus, who are also not his physical offspring. And they put, right. they, they seem to have this, you know, Paul seems to say, be drawing an analogy between, or a metaphor between the two and how this works. Um, and you say, maybe the first beings to whom God spoke had their effect on others through people talking to one another. They shared sin in that way and affected us all. Jesus shared grace in that way and affected us all. Right. What's interesting is you come to this conclusion or offer at least this hypothesis basically just on a close reading of the text. <laughs> I, I take that as a compliment. Uh, you know, because I think people would say, okay, you're being deconstructionist here or something, but, but you're kind of saying, wait, wait, wait. A lot of the received tradition here is actually not the plain sense of the text. Yeah, you're, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we read inevitably and naturally, we read scripture in light of a tradition, the same way as Jews did in Jesus' day. Uh, we, but, but we don't recognize that we do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, you actually um, make a similar point later in the book when you're talking about ideas. And how we, we, a lot of these received ideas, the, the received grammar of the faith is always being reworked. There's continuity and discontinuity. You know, I think it's Albert Ritchell said that, you know, the way in the 19th century he said the way people have done theology is we go to the Bible, see what it, we think it says. We go to history interpretation, look at what's been said, and then come to our constructive conclusions. He said we should start with history of interpretation because that's really what we're doing when we think we're reading the Bible anyway. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I yeah. mean, is there? A... And that's um, we we have to understand ourselves. And and often the the fact that interpretation is now so much more global, uh, and we are much more interested than we were in, were in Ritual's day about history of in, in history of interpretation, uh, and so on, makes it possible for us to be able to relativize what we assume is obviously the meaning of the text. Um, it was much easier for us than it was 50 years ago. Is there a case to, to say that as, as people are studying the Bible, whether in adult education or in seminary, that, gosh, maybe we should start with history of interpretation or, church, or get a sense for how the Bible has been received uh, so, that we can get, so that we can get our prejudices out on the table? Well, I, uh, it depends what you mean by history of interpretation. History of interpretation can be fantastically boring. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, but, it's, but if you read concretely, it's much more interesting. Uh, that is, not, not, try and cover the whole, not try and study the history of interpretation. But, well, let's, here's an example. At the moment, I'm writing a commentary on Genesis. If I wasn't wasting my time talking with you, I'd be um, writing on Genesis 21. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I'm I flattered. Is, I'm very flattered. <laughs> okay, yeah, right. Uh, well, I'm the guy who can't say no, you see. So if you say you want to talk to me, then anybody, I'll, I'll talk to them. Like with Erdman's, you know, saying, will you write this book? And I say, oh, okay, then. Uh, now, um, in, in reading, in, in trying to write this commentary on Genesis, I'm not trying to read every commentary that's been written in the last hundred years, uh, partly because there isn't time, but, but also because I want to make sure I've got time to read Luther 
and Calvin uh, and Origen and Chrysostom uh, and uh, Ibn Ezra and Rashi, the Jewish uh, interpreters, and uh, and by concretely reading, not studying the whole of the history of interpretation, but reading what uh, Rashi or Ibn Ezra or Calvin in particular has got to say about what a chap- whatever chapter I'm reading, does that thing you were just talking about, but it makes it concrete. In, in a section in the book where you're talking about, I mean, you have some amazing portions of the book that work with the Book of Romans. And I'd say to anybody uh, working with Matthew, Luke, Acts, uh, Romans, or the Book of Revelation or Hebrews, to buy your book. Because, I mean, it, it, it's... I just must tell you a joke that uh, my boss is Joel Green. Uh, he's the dean and the provost at Fuller. And he's written a lot on Luke and Acts, uh, as well as being a big deal New Testament guy in general. And he was um, kind of amused um, uh, that I'd written a book that was really kind of pretty much about the New Testament, which is his field. And particularly when he saw how much space I hadn't given to Luke Acts, he was quite not really offended, but, oh, you should have given more space to Luke Acts. <laughs> well, I thought you did a judicious uh, Thank you. job. Okay, but... I'll accept your testimony. Exactly. I mean, but I've never done work in biblical studies, just in systematic theology. So that probably makes me suspect. But, but you know. Um, we proceed. You have this great line where you say that it, where you're talking about predestination and freedom, and you look at how Paul is using Pharaoh in Ro- in, in Romans nine through eleven, and you say, you know, the modern reader is so interested in Pharaoh's will, but mm-hmm. Paul and and the First Testament are both more interested in God's will <laughs> and, yeah, the, and the freedom yeah. of God <laughs> uh, yeah, right, to yeah. actually to yeah. to 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 intervene in time and space. Uh, pro nobis, you know, for us. And I, yeah. I just thought that was a great insight. I mean, at, at, at sort of the alien lenses we sometimes bring to the texts. Right. And, and it seems like what you're saying is sometimes as readers of the Bible, we, we often, we, uh, like our, our priorities are so different. Um, that's right. That's than, right. Than yeah. the authors yeah. of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We are interested in spirituality. We're interested in our faith. Um, more than in God. Uh, and uh, that's that's something that's become more and more clear to me. Uh, apart from my own reading, then, uh, well, to go back to Fry, one of the things about Fry is that Fry, um, re- really Fry is, Bar- is Karl Barth. Uh, and again, 50 years ago, evangelicals thought Karl Barth was really bad and wicked, uh, whereas over the last 50 years, um, evangelicals have come more to appreciate that what Barth was doing was that thing we were talking about um, when we were talking about... Um, fictionalized history, that, that Bart can, can can deal with the nature of the text as being about things that really happened, but a story that brings out the theological significance of them. And Bart wants to be about God, not about human faith. And the other person about whom that's true is Brevard Childs, um, who's, uh, and, and that was something that came home to me through reading his commentary on Isaiah, when he critiques um, great scholarly, scholarly commentaries like uh, Klaus Westermann, talk about this as, as in effect a testimony to Israel's faith and Charles says it's not about Israel's faith it's about God and and I keep wanting to come back to the Bible's about God let's be interested in God more than in, in our faith so is it fair to say that and this is like a simplified uh overstatement to get the gestalt or the shape of the thing but is it fair to say the evangelical wing of the church at least popularly tends to care about our spirituality like right now that's right yeah and the higher critical liberal establishment cares about the spirituality behind the text 
and 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 you know behind historical critical reconstruction like let's get at the psychological you know religious self-conscious of the of the writer and the people and you could be concerned about either of them without really being concerned about god that's right yeah yeah but spirituality is in man i mean how do you how do you sell how do you sell a book on the bible if you're not into spirituality exactly yeah, but the but the other thing that's in is justice. And again, what we're interested in is what we can do and what we feel. Uh, and the Bible thinks both those two are interesting, uh, are important. Uh, but it thinks that God is even more important. Hmm. So we can choose, you know, we can choose whether we want to be interested in what we are interested in, or whether we want to be interested in what the Bible is interested in. It's a free world. We can do whichever. <laughs> But my sense is uh, one of those is closer to uh, the truth than the other is what you're alluding to. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? Gracious conversations characterized by a particular combination of wit, empathy, reflection, and human understanding. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a sound maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, and David Zoll. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Towards the end of um, your section about, in Ro- about Romans, you say that the aim of giving Israel the Torah was to lead them in a way of holiness, but the effect of giving Israel the Torah was to, was to make Israel do things that made them... I'm sorry, but the effect of... Uh, of giving Israel the Torah was to make Israel do things that made them guilty. And, and yet, in another sense, then, Jesus is the aim of the Torah, precisely because the existence of the Torah, accidentally, one could say, leads people to sinning more. It drives people to Jesus, because it is through him that they find forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Who That's can, Roman's argument, isn't it, really? Yeah. So it sounds like you're coming down, we're, we're, we are just weeks away from the 500th anniversary of the reformation Mm -hmm. that sounds to me a little bit like the lutheran take on the argument proffered in romans or at least okay is that a fair assessment of your reading uh i don't think i know enough about lutheranism 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 to say whether that's fair with regard to lutheranism but that's a fair description i think of what i was saying on the base of romans yeah because I, isn't th- isn't this the sort of big one of the big controversies in biblical studies about the nature of the law and especially in a kind of post Holocaust world 
um, how we look at Second Temple Judaism. And so I'm just thinking, you're somebody that's that's swam in these seas for a long time. I mean, have you found yourself embroiled in those controversies at all? Um, well, I, I'm certainly. Uh, I mean, I, I enthuse in a lot of ways about uh, the way that that. Um, I mean, way back in a way now, E.P. Sanders and, and nowadays N.T. Wright, uh, the way in which they've caused a kind of reframing of the uh, what. what what the Torah is about and what Jewish people thought the Torah is about and uh, and the way in which the uh, story of Israel relates to the Jesus story, all that is, for me, as an Old Testament guy, very exciting. But that's a different... The, 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 the theological construction that Paul is doing in Romans, the way that he's talking about the law in Romans, um, well, that's that's coming at the questions from a different sort of angle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and you talk about in the book, how the the authors of the New Testament come to the First Testament with their own agendas, um, right? And how they how the, the, both the New Testament. I mean, you have this great comment about Matthew and some of the prophecies in Isaiah, and you have this great anecdote where somebody who's a Jewish lawyer who's debunking, oh yeah, yeah. Th- 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 all the. Uh, messianic prophecies yeah. <laughs> write you this letter <laughs> with all these uh, basic things like that you'd learn even in evangelical um critical seminaries today about you know the original intent of some of these prophecies and you say well i couldn't dispute although i disputed several things he said in the book i couldn't dispute his reading on the prophecies <laughs> right right and i can't remember whether i say in the book that the trouble that i got into as a consequence of saying that because he he quoted um it, it was on Amazon uh, somehow, I think, you know, there were, he put quotes on Amazon saying I'd said his uh, I couldn't dispute his reading. And and a load of um, people uh, on, on Amazon protested at the idea that I would affirm that this Jewish reading was correct. <laughs> but I mean, that's part of like what you're trying to sort out in the book, right? How do we with our agendas meet the inspired authors of the New Testament and their agendas? Right. As we both we all look at the first testament yeah and one of my convictions is that that whereas um uh, some years ago i mean you know 30 years ago or so um and maybe now to a fair extent uh it seemed very important to evangelicals that the um way that the new testament read the old testament had got to be kind of historically correct um it, it seems to me not least in light of the reality of the renewal movement uh, you don't have to say that because you can say that the Holy Spirit is leading people in leading, leading the New Testament writers to see significances out of the First Testament that historically weren't there. Uh, God can do that if he feels like it. That that doesn't make what the, the fact that there's a difference between the way the New Testament writers are reading the text and what the Old Testament writers themselves meant isn't a problem. Whereas, whereas historically, people have thought that must be a problem and you must be able to bring the two together. Do you think that there's something in Catholicism among like traditionalists, like I think of Benedict the 16th? I mean, Benedict the 16th book on books on the Gospels, I found incredibly helpful. And he's a guy that, like yourself, is not afraid of criticism at all and, and, and delves into great critical discussions. And yet he knows that it's a great servant and a lousy master but but something about his his orthodoxy isn't i mean his his orthodox imagination is not a product of a certain view of biblical inspiration 
Right. Do you, it's true. Do you yeah. think there's something that conservative Protestants have a tougher time because of just uh, the theological DNA to get to that point? Um, well, would it would it be? Um, I mean, one way of of of, uh, of answering that or of framing that is to say that uh, conservative Protestantism, evangelicalism, has been rationalist, uh, and 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 a, a significance of the renewal movement was to pull us out of being rationalist. Were you a participant in that renewal movement? I mean, did that shape your own piety and spirituality? Uh, it came to, um, it, yeah, sure. That that um, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I was that the renewal movement was starting to in in England was starting to happen when I was at seminary, uh, and then when I was working in a parish, and then when I got into seminary teaching. So, as somebody who came out of a conservative-ish background. Um, then I kind of had to find my way into uh, being able to um, accept that and be fed by it and um, f- feel 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 part of it and feel and, and and sense that it it kind of accepted me something like that yeah sure and that renewal movement I mean you're talking like charismatic renewal or yes just... oh, sorry I mean charismatic renewal yeah yeah and. Has that shaped your own practices? I mean, charismatic kind of practices. I mean, well, if you mean when I pray for people in doing healing ministry in church, do I speak in tongues? The answer is yes. And what's your healing rate? I mean, just so people in the greater. What's my healing rate? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you pray in English, do they do they get better faster? Oh, I see. Well, I, I wouldn't know, would I? Because by definition, if I'm praying in tongues, I don't know what I'm saying. So I don't know what I'm asking for. So I don't know what God does as a result of it. <laughs> and you you are actually priest in charge yeah. at St. Barnabas Episcopal yep. Church. And yep. so you're Episcopalians, you preach from the lectionary, I'm taking it. Yes, yes. And are there, like, if there were like one or two texts that you you get so frustrated that aren't in the lectionary, what are they? Because you want to preach on them. Uh, I don't, I don't work that way around. Um, I mean, I start, I, I'm, I start from what is in the lectionary for next Sunday. I don't think about what isn't in the lectionary, really. <laughs> I don't feel, um, I mean, I have, I have written about the lectionary and critiqued it, but, but, but I don't think it, uh, there's so much richness there that I don't think about what isn't there, really. What's the text you've never preached on that you'd like to preach on? <laughs> uh, ooh, I haven't got one. Come on, come on! You spent your whole life with the Bible. There's got to be something you never preached on. Oh, the main, yeah, I'm sure there's things I haven't preached on, but I haven't think I am. I mean, I haven't got it. If I mean, if, if I, I, I guess that if I really felt obliged, if I really felt um, there was something I wanted to preach on, it wasn't in the lectionary. I would feel probably feel free to change the lectionary. <laughs> next, I mean, I do it for. I did it the other week for one of our one of the other people who shares the preaching with me. Who she she said, I want to preach on Romans five. So I said, okay, then we'll read Romans five. <laughs> I mean, I could. Um, I hope the bishop isn't listening to this podcast. Um, hey, this is the best advertisement for the Episcopal Church. We're praying in tongues, and we got choose your own text in the lecture. <laughs> hey, man, not this too might, often. This, I, that, only only once a year. This might be the best Episcopal Church in Southern California, man. <laughs> well, it certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> now, you also um, in your book. It's interesting. You talk about hebrews 11 and you talk about the the way that the first testament looks at its characters like david abraham jacob joseph but the, the the pillars of the faith and you you know in an almost matter of fact way 
that they just don't really give a damn about moral examples. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And, and, and you, you know, it's funny that Hebrews is the exception that proves the rule. Generally, the authors of the New Testament don't either. And, and it's really interesting because you say Hebrews is the one place you can actually find it strangely. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yet this is, I think, isn't this maybe one of the hardest things um, outside of preaching the gospel? I mean, and by preaching the gospel, I mean talking about God, God's grace, God, God's activity and not ours. I mean, I, in my experience, I find this is tough for preachers actually from the gospels themselves because everything just becomes like imitation of Jesus. But then maybe the next hardest place is from Old Testament narratives because of this tendency to do, well, we're going to do a leadership series and talk about David and Moses or things like this, which seems so alien, as you argue, to what the authors of the first Testament are obviously thinking. Right. Right. Uh, and so, um, yeah, if you want to do, yeah. So, uh, we, I don't do series on leadership. Um, you know, we, we you, you take a story out of Genesis, um, and, and you talk about how God is involved there. Uh, and I think actually, although it may be that, um, we think that we want to be told, or certainly preachers think that, that what people need is to be told uh, what to go and do and to be provided a good, ex- provided with a good example. Um, I suspect that, uh, not surprisingly, it's much more. People are much more likely to go away from church and be what God wants them to be, if they've been inspired by who God is and how God is involved in ordinary in the lives of uh, sinners like Abraham and David, um, than if they've been told simply go and be like, go and be these different things. Yeah, it's really interesting too. You you talk about uh, later in the book and. When you're talking about ethics and the way the Bible shapes community life, you talk about the norms of creation and the accommodation to stubbornness of humanity. And yeah. I, th- I thought that was a really good and well-stated point. I mean, because it, it's almost like you're pointing out the pastoral side of God or the pastoral heart of God. Right. <laughs> and, and why? And so could, could you just talk about the importance of acknowledging human stubbornness? Uh, as we read uh, about texts that shape a vision for life in the Bible, well, the, um, the the key thing there is that it's the the comment in the book arises out of um, Jesus' Jesus's discussion with some Pharisees about whether divorce is okay, uh, and um, Jesus says, "What does it say in the Bible?" And the Pharisees say, "It says uh, it allows for divorce in Deuteronomy 24." Uh, Jesus says that's not the only thing it says in the Bible uh, and points them to Genesis 1 and 2 uh, and makes that distinction between what's God's vision and God's ideal and what God wanted from creation, Genesis 1 and 2, and what is God going to do about the fact that we don't live up to that? And and God doesn't j- just then leave us on our own and say, well, you're okay, you're, you're on your own now. But God makes some rules that attempt to constrain the ill results of the fact uh, that we don't live up to God's standards. Um, but that, but then challenges us, challenges the readers to live up to God's high standards. The funny thing then is that in at least one of the accounts in the Gospels, um, the, uh, the the disciples say, "Well, if we're not going to be allowed to have divorce, then who's going to get married?" <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they get they get it in a way. They illustrate how the disciples, for goodness' sake, are people who show, uh, as they do in lots of contexts that they need God's condescension, God's pastoral concern, God's making allowance for who we are and our sinfulness, uh, at least as much as they need uh, a revelation of God's highest standard. 
I think the tricky um, implication of looking at that, looking at it that way, is that one the disciples illustrate, which is um, that uh, it's tempting for us to take hold of what's the um, the condescension standard when when maybe God wants us to have a go at the uh, creation standard. Yeah, and it's interesting too that you point that you point out there the irony of Jesus. I mean, like, it seems like Jesus sometimes crafts things to get that kind of ironic response out of the disciples. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe he does. I I think that Jesus and God spend a lot of their time rolling their eyes uh, in astonishment at the uh, amazingly stupid things that disciples like us say and do. Now, I mean, you've spent your professional life as an interpreter and teacher of the Bible and as a parish minister. And I, I mean, many ages in the church are ages of controversies, right? Like, and so, I mean, every, and every age tends to absolutize itself. But I mean, but this, yeah. you have interpreted in, in, in a lot of controversies. I mean, through the sexual revolution, issues of gender, issues of sexuality, the science versus the Bible. Uh, now, the, the sort of seemingly sp- seeming split in the United States between sort of the religious pol- the political party and the, and the secular one and all this. I mean, is has that, how has that, how has controversy shaped your work as a teacher of the Bible? I mean, is, is, is it been challenging? Um, well, it's often given me things to think furiously about. Um, though one of my reflections then is that when you've been through one or two kind of controversies and thought your way through them, the next time one comes, you kind of can be more relaxed about it because you know that we've been this way before. And, okay, I can't see what the resolution is to this question now, but probably the year after next I'll be able to. That's one of my reflections. So So you can be more kind of relaxed about issues than you might once have been. Is there like this kind of – you get your first heartbreak or anxiety or panic attack over the first one <laughs> and think yeah, if it doesn't, oh, yeah, if, it do, yeah, if it doesn't work out this way, there's no future. Yeah. And then you start to yeah. realize, well, things will go on. God will go yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is even if there's a zombie apocalypse, people will still probably have Bibles. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess though that's, I mean, uh, more seriously, um, I think that the, um, the church in the United States is on its way towards uh, the same fate that the church in Europe um, has experienced over the past, I don't know, 50, 100 years. Um, and it's, it's on its way into exile. Um, but that won't be the end of the story of the church in the United States because God will then do some more work in it. Do you think there are mistakes that the church in Europe made that we're not paying attention to here that, that could make the ex- exile... Yeah, uh, uh, could mitigate it to some degree. Um, I don't know. I don't know enough about church history. I don't think really. Um, and the the shape the shape of the history of the United States. Uh, I mean, over several centuries, in in general, politically, but also religiously, is so different from the history in Europe. For instance, well, John, um, John, politically, let me help you. A big time was in 1776. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Uh, I'm very grateful that I can still, you know, the tea having all been poured into the Boston Harbour, I can still get uh, Amazon to import tea from England for me. (laughs) What a waste of good tea. (laughs) 
So, so I mean, yeah, I mean that. So basically, we we don't have any but idea. <laughs> Europe had the political war. Europe did have um, that tie up of church and state. Uh, Europe did have the uh, the wars between the political wars, and Europe also had uh, rationalism and the Enlightenment and whatnot. Uh, and the whole profile of those uh, factors uh, and the way they affected the church and Christian faith and whatnot in Europe, uh, it, it's just it's just not been like that. Uh, in the Americas. See what I mean? Yeah. 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 It, and also it's, it's strange that in America we have, because of non-established church, at least quickly, you know, after our constitutional framework shook out, it, it, it's great for religious entrepreneurs, but I think, <laughs> yes, I, but yes. I, I think like our financial system, it's big winners yes. and big losers. I, I, you yes. know, it's just like in, in the economic sector, it seems like in the religious sector, yes, lots more small churches and, the propagation of big religious winners. Like it's yes. strange with very yes. much yes. narrowing thing in between. Yes. Who are your favorite theologians and biblical interpreters? Like who are your go-to conversation? I mean, you, you alluded to Luther and Calvin and Christosom and, and I think Rashi, some others like, but uh, contemporary folks, I'm thinking who are people that you look at? And well, I was going to say Karl Barth, but he's not contemporary. <laughs> he's uh, contemporary to me. <laughs> He is contemporary. You say he is. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, okay, I, yeah, I, I, mean, I love I Bart. Think, I mean, um, Bart is. I think Bart is. Yeah, but, but, but yeah, Karl Bart. Um, uh, when, when did you start reading Bart? Um, well, I, I bought a set of the Church Dogmatics in the maybe about 1990. Uh, maybe, maybe no, it was a bit before that. Yeah, in the 1980s, 1980s, 1990s. Yeah. What did it run you back then? Uh. It was it was it was second hand, um, and I don't remember. It was a three figure sum in pounds, <laughs> um, but I can't. But I don't actually remember how. What? Yeah, I don't remember. Sorry. Mine was in seminary in like right around two thousand, and I think it was one hundred and eighty five dollars from. Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. What, from a retired very, ethics prof. <laughs> yeah, wasn't very different from that. But of course, now it's all online. I mean, now. Um, when I get back to England, I probably won't take it with me because I've got it all on my hard drive. Yeah. No. How did you start reading it? I mean, did you like? Where did you huh? did you start from the beginning and just? Or yes. Did you read around? How far did you I get? I started. I think I started at the beginning. Um, I mean, obviously, I'd read bits of it before, but I decided, oh, I think I should read that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you're reading the Bible, start in Genesis. If you're reading Karl Barth, start in one one. But I think um, it it gets much more interesting when you get into two. You know, than the, the, the I, I probably skimmed the first. Um, is there, are there are two parts in Volume One or whatever they call it, two, um, one one and one two. They're kind of more philosophical ones, aren't they? Uh, and I, I got more interested. Oh, I tell you what, probably was in part. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of the considerations would be. Uh, the, the way in which Gerhard von Rad in his commentary on Genesis uh, alludes to Bart and um, has a, a Bartian kind of understanding of the historical value of Genesis and, and refers to Bart. And that took me into, I think it's probably uh, volume three uh, of, of Bart, where he do, does his stuff on Genesis. And I found that really interesting. So that was my that was probably my way into it. Mine was um, three, four, the ethics of creation. It was, oh, a, right, yeah. it was a one yeah. credit seminary class, Bart reading. And uh, man, he had me when he started talking about vegetarianism. <laughs> I, I am a meat, I am a meat eater. And he said, it's over realized eschatology. Yeah. 
I think he, I think he probably had me when he describes the Song of Songs as an extended commentary on the end of Genesis two, mm. which I think he's actually ironically I now think he's wrong, um, but but at the time I thought that is a brilliant insight. <laughs> Yeah, but part of your book argues too, right, that what you're saying is that we ought to have space for brilliant insights. I, I, I mean, I feel like you're saying we, we basically we ought to like honor the integrity of the First Testament, realize that the New Testament has some different agendas at times, and it can all be inspired, and, and then have those anchors as we see our own takes on the text with our own imaginations. But it sounds like as long as we're concerned that their concerns are primarily about God. <laughs> and if our imaginations are primarily about God, as Bart's was, then even our mistakes won't be awful. <laughs> well, they, they might be, but they needn't be. Uh, I thought, when, when you were talking about um, Benedict, I thought you were going to talk about allegory. And I think it is, this links with allegory. Uh, allegorical interpretation. Another way to put it is to say that the kind of interpretation we're talking about is very like allegorical interpretation. And allegorical interpretation is kind of okay with two safeguards. One safeguard is you mustn't teach something on the basis of an allegorical interpretation of a text. You couldn't teach on the basis of the straightforward interpretation of some other text. Uh, And the other thing is you mustn't let allegorical interpretation let you off um, taking uh, uh, simply assimilating the text um, to what you're interested in, and not and never uh, taking any notes of what of, the, of what the text itself is interested in. Yeah, and by allegory you mean a kind of interpretation, like if we're talking about Joseph and Mary in the desert on a donkey, you know, for the census. Well, they're on. We all know sand is yellow or like gold, and that means they're on a pilgrimage, you know, to the city of well, God. Well, yeah, or, or, or the Song of Songs. I mean, taking the Song of Songs as being about God's relationship with us is, is, is the classic of allegorical interpretation. But the bad literal interpretation would be to think it's a better take on romance than the Kama Sutra, maybe. So maybe typology is the way we need to go. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, Jewish interpretation of the Song of Songs is both typological and allegorical, and that doesn't help really. <laughs> That was a bad joke. So, you know, I was thinking about your writing a book about the Bible and your editor saying, well, start with the New Testament. That's where people start. But it, it seems like in today's day and age, we still get, despite the, the increased, the, the increased uh, numbers of the nuns in our culture, you know, the, the non-affiliated, people still with remarkable uh, consistency or in remarkable numbers say that they take the Bible pretty seriously and, and they even think it's the inspired authoritative word of God. And yet no one reads it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. I, I, I mean, so on some level, do you need to do a primer on this? Like why the hell you read the Bible? <laughs> like, I mean, what would that book look like? Uh, it's coming out for intervarsity in a few weeks. Oh, wow. Well, I got to have you back on the show. Is it really? <laughs> sure. Enough, yeah. All right. I love that. What's it called? Oh dear, what's it called? Um, okay, that's not a good. You need a better agent. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's gone out. She, my wife, is my agent. Um, what's <laughs> it called? Uh, re- read first, first read first something. Um, no, I can't remember. <laughs> it was their title. You see, uh, writing books is easy, uh, but thinking of titles for books is really hard. That's like sermons, right? I feel like most sermons I've had good titles for. The title was thought up weeks before and yeah. had nothing to do with what I said. And other times <laughs> this, where I felt like, ah, the sermon I had something to say, the titles were absolutely abysmal. 
<laughs> so, but what, I mean, okay, so you did write that book. I mean, what what was the thrust of the argument? Like, why read it? Oh, it's really about, it's really much more of, um, uh, it's an introduction to um, the, the Bible as a whole and kind of why it's important. But what if, uh, what, if and, you, what if you just had to cut the introduction part out and say, hey, Joe or Jane Schmo on the street, like why, here's my pitch for why to read this book that I've spent my life working on and that I think it's fair to say you've staked your life on its truth. Right, right. Well, uh, if you're if you're talking about a non-Christian, then I probably wouldn't bother. I'd say I need to talk to you about Jesus. Huh. Uh, if I'm talking about a Christian, then what I've done in that book uh, that, that we're talking about is, as it were, it. It's saying, if you're serious as a Christian about the New Testament, which you probably are, uh, you need to start getting serious about the Old Testament because the New Testament is very serious about the Old Testament. In addition, however, um, I mean, the reason, if you like, why I've staked my life, given my life to it, is that it is fantastic. It's just reading it. It's just so it's just so incredible in the way the kind of ways it encourages to pray and the stories that it tells and the advice it gives you about life and whatnot. Just read it. And if you don't find you're excited by it, well, OK, you haven't. Have you read Rob Bell's most recent book on the Bible? No. I actually think that's the argument he makes. It's oh, really, okay. It's right. re- it's really interesting. He was hanging out with a lot of Hollywood type, you know, people in Hollywood, and yeah, he'd be at cocktail parties and talking about existential issues with them and stuff. And he's just so soaked in the Bible that he would say, "Oh, you just put your camera back on. I put mine." On. He was so soaked in the Bible that he would just second nature grab biblical stories <laughs> to to talk with them about their lives and they yeah. were just like you got to write this stuff down man yeah <laughs> and so it's like book out the bible was such a a great plea for uh, yeah. the bible is interesting yeah so you conclude your book with something that moved me um you talk about how carl bart uh in an in an exposition that he was giving in an address um where he was being expelled from germany yeah <laughs> um uh, from it was based on Psalm 119, verse 67. It says, Now I keep your word. And he says, And now the end has come. So listen to my piece of advice exegesis, exegesis, and yet more exegesis. Keep to the word, to the scriptures that have been given us. And then you talk about Augustine um, yeah. over the Psalms. And he reads, How long, Yahweh, will you be angry permanently? Do not keep in mind the wayward act of the past for us. And then you talk about, Hey, here's this voice of a child in a nearby house singing over and over again, take up, read, take up, read. And he just went back to the Bible. And your last words in the book are, yes, take up, read. Do you think that part of the issue or challenge with the Bible, at least in the American context, is there are so many arguments about bibliology and inspiration and confessional interpretation and so many precursors to take up and reading that there's that there's sort of uh prolegomena fatigue like, like it, it seems like people like Bart and Augustine had such different understandings of the of biblical interpretation of the background of the text and yet these are two church fathers that just understand that the church's lifeblood uh will be in the spirit and the word mm. and so mm. i mean how do, is there is there a way to to end the prolegomena wars or something and get us to the to this interestingness of the text itself well i don't know whether this is quite an answer to that question but one of the things that strikes me uh, about seminary stu- seminary students 
uh, is that they are afraid to read the Bible uh, because they're uh, they don't have any confidence about understanding it. Uh, and a paradoxical thing about the American church that that reflects uh, is that th- is that people think they can only understand it if the pastor tells them what it means. Uh, and we're actually in a position that was just the, the um, uh, set of assumptions that the Reformation was designed to uh, counteract. Um, and, and so the pastor has to tell them what it means. The pastor then um, cuts down the kind of things the pastor talks about in the sermons to the kind of things that he thinks that the congregation will be interested in. Um, and, and there's a kind of vicious circle thereby uh, in terms of in the interaction of the church with the Bible. Um, and and what I, one of the key things that I seek to do with students is to take up and read. So I, don't, I send them away to go and read Genesis or whatever it is uh, with some questions to think about. Um, and and I love the way then that how often they will come back with their, their and their their eyes have popped their, their lights have gone out oh wow uh, not least when they say it doesn't tell me what my Sunday school teacher told me that it says uh, and and I think that the the reality of the the activity of the Holy Spirit in inspiring the Scriptures and in being the one who indwells the church is the basis for saying go and read. Have students told you that, that they're afraid to read it? Yeah. Like after class? I mean, how does that happen? Like, where, I mean, that seems like a pretty, um, that seems like a pretty intimate thing to say as a seminary student. Cause most seminary students aren't afraid to do theology or read it. I mean, I've heard the adage that people go to seminary to learn Greek and Hebrew and teach theology. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so what, what was your question? Again? I mean, I mean, they really say the when, when people like, what's the context? I mean, is it after class? Is it over lunch? I oh, mean, they want it... to be told what the rules are for reading, right? Like I teach a course on biblical interpretation and what they think they're going to get out of this course is some rules to tell them the difference between, um, true, proper interpretation, correct interpretation and wrong interpretation. And one of the things I say to them then is that's not what this course. And if they think that, then towards the end of the course, I've discovered, I have discovered they they are um, bemused or uh, troubled because they don't feel clearer on what is the difference between true inter- right interpretation and wrong interpretation. Uh, and the reason for that is I say to them, uh, I say to them earlier on in the course now, and now I've caught on to that to this being a problem, that that the problem about interpretation isn't that we it isn't that people are interpreting the bible wrongly it's that we're only getting 10% of what's there in the bible and therefore what we need is ways into being able to see much more of what's actually there so here are some ways into reading the bible don't worry about your interpretation being wrong worry about the 90% of the stuff there that you're not seeing and sometimes um they uh, they get it mm. T.S. Eliot said he, he thought description was always preferred to explanation because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. two descriptions can complement each other. But once you have a, yeah, yeah, right. explanations, beg rules, which beg control. And and so, yeah, maybe this is the uh, law in the in the worst character kind of sense of the word of, of, of I want the rules to have control to, to yeah, be in control yeah. <laughs> rather yeah, than I, rather than have it be about God. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I think fear is a big thing. Yeah. And perfect love drives out fear. Right. Yeah. 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 And and love is the opposite of control, I suppose. So, yeah. John, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, Okay. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's so interesting to talk with someone 
who I've read for a while. And, <laughs> and, uh, to see your face and hear your voice, it's interesting because, uh, okay. Yeah. That was fun for me. And thank you for All right. writing, you. writing a book that was this okay. good. All right. Thanks. Bye then. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to John Goldingate for coming on the podcast. And please do check out his book, Reading Jesus Bible. And thanks again to you for listening to this show and for all your support. Until next time, fare thee well.